All right. Well, this morning, we are still in the book of 1 John. If you've been with us over the past several Sundays, what we have been doing is we have been doing a fair bit of review here at State Road Advent Christian Church. Um, we, uh, back maybe, man, has it been that long, three, four years ago, something like that, we had, uh, we went through talking about how we should be a people who love God, love others, and love in action. That's what we're about as a people. And we didn't just come up with those because we read a book somewhere or because we thought it was trendy or we thought it thought sounded good. We adopted those three statements, those three representative statements of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus because of some things that Jesus himself said. Jesus said that uh, being a disciple, at least in part, when he gave us the Great Commission, involved teaching them all that he had commanded. And Jesus himself summarized all the commands of Scripture down into two statements. Remember, a lawyer came to him and asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love him with everything you've got, all, every part of you. And then he had, gave a freebie. He said, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he was quoting there from a, a passage in Leviticus. And then he makes this extraordinarily expansive statement. He says, off of these two commands hangs all the law and the prophets. Basically, the whole word of God, his revelation to fallen mankind, are kind of summed up and contained in those two representative commands. Those are two big, overarching commands. And not only that, but if we understand Jesus rightly, Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, is the word made flesh. He's the embodiment of those commands. And we're called to be his disciples, which means what? Well, the disciple is a sincere, from-the-heart imitator of Jesus. We are to imitate the man who embodied those two commands. And when we see about how he lived them out, it was never just about feelings or words with Jesus. It's about action. It's about the cross. It's about a life of laying down your life in sacrificial service to others. And so we add to make explicit what was implied when Jesus said that, love in action. Loving God, loving others, love in action. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple. And here at State Road, we always want to be a community of traveling companions who are encouraging one another to go deeper in these three areas. We can always grow as a lover of God, as a lover of others, and to love more actively. And so what we are doing to help us kind of revisit these core concepts at the center of our fellowship here at State Road is we have been spending time in the book of 1 John. 1 John is really all about these three ideas. And in our first Sunday together, we kind of did a, a 30,000-foot overview of the book. We saw John, the thrust of his big argument across the five chapters of 1 John, and now, on these Sundays, we're touching down, we're landing, and we're taking a more close-up look at specific portions of the book of 1 John. And this morning, we are in the opening seven verses of the whole book, 1 John 1, verses 1 through 7. John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, "'That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life.'" The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that, I invite you just to zero in on that, so that, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing, the, writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins. A couple different things I want you to focus in. I already drew attention to that so that. And of course, whenever you encounter that sort of a thing in Scripture, sometimes it's therefore or some other construction, what the writer is drawing attention to is the things that he said before and the things he said after are linked by that bridge so that. Because this is true, this is true. This is the way that it's broken down. And the so that is this way. He, after saying so that, he goes on to talk about fellowship. Before we come back to talk about what is the basis or the root of Christian fellowship, I first need to define that term. Back in 2018 when we were talking about this, we did a, um, at that time we were talking about the passage in Acts 2 where it's describing the early church when it first flourished and took off and was exploding in Jerusalem. And it says there that they were devoted to prayer, to the teachings of the apostles, and it also says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread and one other thing, to fellowship. Fellowship, they were devoted to fellowship. What does this mean? We spent some time talking about it, and you guys all probably remember that service from 2018, so, <laughs> so, so let me just skip some, pay. no, that's okay, we'll, we'll touch it up again. Uh, I think that arguably the most important word that we find in, the, in this block of verses is this word fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. In the New Testament, koinonia signifies this. It means having a share in something or sharing, participating with someone in something. For example, here's a few verses um, where, we f where the word koinonia is used. First is 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless is not, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Or in 2 Corinthians 8, 4, it says, They begged us earnestly for the grace and the participation in the ministry to the saints. In Philippians 3, 10, it says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings. In Philippians 1, 3 through 5, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now in those four passages I just read, the word fellowship never appears. We never see the word fellowship in there. It's more described. But the word koinonia is there, which is typically what we translate fellowship. Koinonia is translated in First and Second Corinthians as participation in Philippians 3 as sharing, and in Philippians 1 as partnership. Now in English, these words all have slightly different shades of meaning, but in the original manuscripts, the same word was used to signify all these things, and that is koinonia, fellowship. So koinonia 
is a shared hope in Christ. Guys, it is a shared cause. It is a shared mutual concern for one another, another, often in the midst of shared hardships. Biblical fellowship, therefore, is participation, sharing, and partnership. Now, I want you to entertain with me something here for just a moment. Consider with me the design and layout of this room and what that means for what it is designed to accomplish. It's a beautiful room. It's big. It's bigger than any of the rooms in any of our houses. It's long and narrow. In this room, each of the 32 pews are oriented in the same direction. And down here at this end of the room, there is a raised platform with me facing the opposite direction. (laughs) I'm separated, set off, elevated. Because of the microphone, my voice is louder than anyone else's in the room. What does all this mean? This all sounds like I'm ramping up to a criticism of what we're doing. I'm not. I believe that this is something good and right. God's people should gather in this way and, 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 and sit under the teaching of Bible teaching and just in this way. But what I am telling you is that this is not fellowship. <laughs> it's not. Not in the way that the Bible describes the fullness of what that's meant to be. Partnership, sharing, engaged. If you guys had come in through the back doors and we had a bunch of chairs set up in circles, you probably would have left right away. <laughs> but you would know that you were going to be in for a very different sort of time. But when you come into a space like this and you sit down, you know automatically because of the design and layout of the room that what is about to follow is a lecture-style format. It's going to be you witnessing something up front. Now, I just point that out to say that although this is good, this is right, I believe it is commanded in Scripture that we gather in just this way. This is special and unique and altogether good. It is not the fullness of God's heart for his people. It is not all that he would require of us. And for us to flourish as Jesus followers, we need this, but we need something else besides. And so for this morning, what I want to do is point you to some way that we can hopefully see koinonia fellowship flourish in the life of our church. This isn't the first time we've talked about koinonia, I know. Back in 2018, we studied that passage in Acts 2 I was telling you about. And at that time, I quoted something that writer and pastor David Mathis said. He points out that J.R. Tolkien, who introduced the world to hobbits in Middle-earth, called the group of nine companions whose mission it was to accompany and help Frodo along the way. Remember, he had to go to Mordor to cast the ring in. What was that group called? Well, it was called the Fellowship of the Ring. And J.R. Tolkien wrote that story as a sort of a biblical allegory. He was informed by a Christian worldview when he wrote it. And that picture of fellowship seems closer to what the biblical writers meant when they spoke of koinonia than the way I typically think of it or speak of it. Mathis writes this. He continues, It's an all-in, life-or-death collective venture in the face of great evil and overwhelming opposition. True fellowship is less like friends gathered to watch the Super Bowl 
and more like players on the field, in blood, sweat, and tears, huddled in the backfield, only in preparation for the next down. True fellowship is more the invading troops side by side on the beach at Normandy than it is the gleeful revelers in the street on VE Day. VE Day, sorry. Now, if you're honest and you're like me, I think many of us have difficulty with that kind of language or imagery. I pointed this out back then as well. And I think that the way when I first read this by Mathis, my first gut reaction was this. All this talk is kind of melodramatic and over the top. Does it strike you that way? And the reason I think why I felt that way is because those analogies, I mean, did he really say life and death? Did he really say we're confronted by great evil and overwhelming opposition? Did he really speak of casting rings into Mordor, blood, sweat, and tears landing at Normandy? Are those things descriptions of the Christian life? Are those things in any way representative of your Christian experience in the church? Being a Christian in the experience of many has not been scary or costly or overly difficult, and so I have trouble feeling a need for koinonia fellowship. That's a true statement about Josh Tate. Sure, I like friends and gatherings and special events at church. I love the idea of an indoor soccer league. That sounds great. But side by side at Normandy? Let's not get carried away, Mathis. But consider this. Numerous times in the New Testament, Satan is called the God of this world or the ruler of this world. Three times in the book of John, Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world. So if Satan fancies himself the ruler of this world, then what would it mean for God to move himself into this world through the womb of Mary on that first Christmas? Christmas is D-Day. <laughs> that was the landing. And the church today moves forward under the orders of the Great Commission to break the grip of Satan over all these occupied lands, to liberate out from under his oppressive, tyrannical rule people who rightly belong in the kingdom of Jesus. Fellow Christian, to the enemy, you are invading troops. So for a Christian to feel no need for a koinonia-type community, a forward unit in the Great Commission invasion of this world, it's kind of like somebody who's inside on a rainy day who says, I don't need an umbrella. It just means they're not intending to venture out. <laughs> However, you cannot go with Jesus and stay where you are, church family. We cannot. I cannot. Our king is on the march. And if we intend to venture out, seriously, with bitter earnest now, if we really mean the stuff we talk about, if we intend to step out into the harvest, out of our comfort zones, to venture out into world missions, out into the schools or workplace or family reunion, or even just go across the street and bring with us the aroma of Christ with us into those spaces, I think then we will begin to feel a need for koinonia. My 
gut reaction to Mathis revealed more about me, I think, than what he, the truth of what he said. We've all been sent, but Josh Tate, my goodness, how far have you gone? I think we need Koinonia Fellowship. We certainly do. And especially if we are going to pursue the calling that God has placed on our church to go and make disciples. And to be a disciple, really and truly. These are difficult, challenging days. And we need community. We need people around us. We're all a bunch of crooked sticks. But if you take a bunch of crooked sticks and put them in a bundle that tends to straighten out, have you noticed that? (laughs) And I think that sometimes in the presence of Christian community, I'm straightened out. I'm helped, immensely helped. But I want us to see this. Having now defined fellowship and having grasped a sense of what the biblical writers meant when they spoke of it, let's look here at the root or the basis of Christian fellowship. I think sometimes in the church we are, attempted, we are tempted to avoid doctrine for the sake of fellowship. You know, something I noticed, and it was really fascinating to me, you know, again, speaking about another sermon series we already did, uh, remember when we went through the conversion accounts in the book of Acts? At one point, we went through the book of Acts, and we highlighted all the different conversion accounts in there. And what I expected to find when I first started studying this was this idea I had that first you become friends with somebody, and then in the midst of that friendship, you share Christ with them. What I actually found, I'm not saying that doesn't exist or, that's not a, that, or that that's a bad idea. I don't think it is. But I was challenged with a different thought. When I studied all the conversion accounts in the book of Acts, what happened was deep relationships were born as a result of people being converted. Take Lydia, for example. We studied her, I think it was in Acts 16. I should have looked it up before I said it from up here, but (laughs) I think it was. But Lydia was just listening to Paul by the riverbank. She's a, a businesswoman, and she comes to believe in the gospel overhearing Paul and his preaching. And then as a result of having been converted, Paul is invited into her home to meet her family. They share meals together. Fellowship was born as the result of shared belief, shared convictions. And what he says here, I think something, sometimes we are tempted to say, let's set aside doctrinal belief for the sake of fellowship. Let's just all get together and have it feel good to be together, and let's not really talk about this much, because this is controversial, (laughs) and that's not what he says here. God's word, who God is and what he has said in his word, is not an obstacle to fellowship, but rather the basis of Christian fellowship. Look again with me at what John says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that, what? You can have fellowship with us and also with the Father. Antoine de saint Exupéry, a quote I like a lot, uh, one time at a yard sale, I bought for like 25 cents a book of love poetry. I thought maybe I'll read these and impress Sarah someday. But in there, I found a quote from Antoine de saint Exupéry, and it says, love does not consist of gazing at each other, 
but in looking outward together in the same direction. That really struck me as true. That really struck me as true. What is the basis of Christian fellowship? Not that we just sit around and gaze at each other, that we're delighted in each other's presence, but that we are a community that looks outward together in the same direction. The basis of our fellowship is shared belief, and that shapes the whole. The prophet Amos posed the question in Amos 3.3. It says, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Oh, so true. So true. So our koinonia small groups are centered around biblical truth. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind in the same judgment. He wrote to the Philippian church, Philippian 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here's the rub, though. Here's the difficulty with this truth. I think we all intuitively grasp that fellowship, Christian fellowship, has to be based on shared truth. But it's true that although doctrine is what unifies the church, hasn't it also been true that doctrine historically is what has divided us the most? You get a group of people to sit down, they start talking doctrine, and rather than unity and koinonia flourishing, disputation arises. Argument. That's not how I see it. That's not how the church I was raised in taught that. Instead of great unity arising out of the exploration of God's truth, we find division flourishing. Guys, this is, um, this is a difficult point. What, what do we say about this? This is why I think there is such a temptation when you get diverse Christians together to avoid exploration of controversial truth. Because you want koinonia to flourish, but you're afraid that in the effort to establish shared understanding of what's truth, something else will flourish, disunity, disagreement, disputation. What do we do with that? Very difficult. It's going to be the challenge in our small groups that will be gathering in the, month, the beginning in the month of October. And I want to provide something really quick before we move on, maybe a, some helpful thought. Uh, one is just to know that doctrine must be defended and contended for wherever God's people are rejecting the truth. Has to be. We, we all know the difference, don't we, between Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the door and somebody who just loves debating. <laughs> Any old thing. Isn't that true? I think we love a, a truth defender like Martin Luther. And that guy's brave. He's courageous. It's clear. It's concise. And not only that, but he seems to love the truth that he is defending. It is precious to him personally. It has led to worship in his life. So doctrine must be defended and contended for, especially among God's people, if we are beginning to walk away from what is true. And if we don't do that, we can never know koinonia, because truth is the basis of our fellowship with God and with one another. 
Unity is only as good as what we unify around. And if we unify around a felt sense of harmony, then that replaces the pursuit of truth as the highest objective of our group. That's dangerous. In his, in his second letter, John, if we were in 1 John, but in 2 John, he says this, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. He's kind of describing there a negative koinonia, where you share in wickedness by not confronting error. That's, that's a tough word from John. So we all love the moral courage of a Martin Luther, but we also see the dangers of, contentious, of, of a contentious spirit that delights in arguing about truth rather than contending for the truth. There, there, there is a spirit in some, maybe sometimes in me, that loves debating about what is true more than I just love the truth, <laughs> and I worship what is true. 1 Timothy 1 says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He's describing something other than what Martin Luther is doing. He's describing vain discussions. People who speak confidently but don't have a heart of worship behind what they're saying. So this is the challenge and whenever we gather in this way, God's word was given for what purposes? It was given to teach, to rebuke, to correct, to train. And by submitting myself to this book, I am humbly saying to God, it's always dangerous when you describe yourself as humble. (laughs) Maybe I take that back. Scratch that. I am saying to God, make me humble. I am saying to God, I need to be taught. I need to be rebuked. I need to be corrected. I need to be trained. And when we sit in a circle as Christians, we are saying as a t- a tacitly to our fellow believers, I am here in part in the hopes that in the midst of this Bible-saturated discussion, Bible-focused discussion, in the midst of that, I will be taught, rebuked, corrected, trained. I need it. So we all need to approach this time with a humble spirit. We need to approach our times together with the expectation that God would speak through his people and through his word in those times to accomplish that. But one thing else that we have talked about on previous Sundays is this maxim. It's an old one in the church, but very helpful. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Now, there are certain doctrines in the Bible that all Christians everywhere agree on. And in those things, we should be completely unified. And then beneath that are a lot of doctrines where Christians of good conscience can and will disagree. And we need to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. You know, for example, there are Christians who have wildly different ideas about alcohol, its permissibility, whether it is good or bad or inherently wicked or sometimes good but could become bad. 
And Christians sit down and they have different ideas about that. Now, are we going to break fellowship with one another because we disagree over that doctrine? I would hope not. I would hope that we could explore those kinds of ideas in a spirit of liberty, extending charity to people who don't agree with us. But in, in, in those matters of primary doctrine, we need to be in lockstep agreement on who Jesus is, on what he did, on what the Bible is, these kinds of things. Okay. Moving on. So that, that's, that's going to be my prayer as we gather, is that it would be a Bible-focused time as God's people gather, that the, the root and the basis of your fellowship would be in a shared conviction about Scripture, a shared commitment to explore Scripture and apply it to our lives. But I will be praying also that those divisions that so often happen among God people when we sit down to talk about the Bible don't happen, and that we could extend liberty and charity to others who don't share our view exactly on so many different issues. So that's the basis or the root of Christian fellowship. Let me briefly just talk a little bit about what flows out of it. What is the fruit of Christian fellowship? In verses 4 through 7, John writes this, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Zero in on that word joy. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. First thing I want you to see here is here in verse four where he says that joy may be complete. Uh, My version says our joy Uh, But many other versions say your joy, and it is ambiguous, that word in the Greek, how to interpret it. It could be our joy or your joy. But what I want you to see here is that somebody's joy is made complete in this fellowship. Um, My guess is it would be everybody's. Um, In 2 John 12, he says something very similar as he uh, signs off his letter in 2 John. He said, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. This is a really interesting passage, especially coming out of the past 18 months of pandemic weirdness. And I don't know, we might be just launching into the next 18 months of pandemic weirdness. Nobody knows where we're at in the midst of all this stuff. I would just point this out, though. He says that writing or interacting with these people from a distance does not result in the fullness of joy that comes from a face-to-face. This is interesting to me. And it's interesting in light of where we're at as a people, an American people, a pandemic people, a Christian church people, that he links a face-to-face meeting with fullness of joy. There is great joy in shared face-to-face camaraderie of the church. We are a people who gather. And uh, we, we are less than living out the fullness of God's counsel if we try to live our lives in isolation from the church. It's like we talked about last Sunday, other Sundays, where there is a, there is a, a certain spiritual hypothermia that sets in that is counteracted by body heat. We need to be in close, intimate contact with the body of Christ. These days are cold. 
Jesus said in, in the book of Matthew that the last days, the love of many would grow cold. There's a strong downward pull on our hearts. And we must strive intentionally against the current that would chill our heart's affections. And part of God's uh, prescription, his, his grace to us, is the body of Christ. That in a shared face-to-face, we are oftentimes made warm in our affections. So that's one thing I want you to see. In um, signing up for a small group, Maybe difficult, maybe you're like me, you're kind of an introverted person, and the thought of sitting in a circle and allowing people into the reality of your lives is an intimidating one. I want you to know that putting your name down on a small group sheet is a violent act. (laughs) You are violently pushing back against the sinful inclinations of my heart, I am, and I am fighting for my joy. I want you to believe God's commands are for your joy. And he has said, I want you to have a koinonia fellowship in your life for your joy. And so I encourage you to do that difficult step, step out of your comfort zone and put your name down on a group. I think you will be grateful. The last thing to see here as far as the the fruit of this fellowship What John is envisioning is not only a community of people who agree intellectually about what is true, but who are helping one another live the truth that they know. The word for fellowship, again, occurs twice in these last verses, the second half of these verses as well. And what these verses are making plain is we can only have koinonia with one another if we are brought first into koinonia with God through Christ. And in God, there is no darkness at all, John tells us. And we cannot be in fellowship with God if we remain in darkness. Darkness and light have nothing to do with each other. But once we are brought into vertical fellowship with God, a horizontal fellowship with one another, with, with other believers, of necessity must follow. And we see this in these verses. If we say we have fellowship, koinonia, with him... While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But, we, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The true mark of a saving faith is not merely that we know the truth, but that we love the truth and are living the truth that we know. Not perfectly. Don't hear me say that. No one is expecting moral perfection. We all know that we are sinners. We are deeply flawed. We blow it in many ways. But in all sincerity, is it your desire to walk in the truth? This is why James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. This is why James said, I'm sorry, this is, this is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his life on a rock. And then in verse 26, Jesus describes the foolish man who builds his house on the sand, not as somebody who was ignorant of Jesus' words, but rather as someone who heard his words and didn't do them. Knowing the truth matters, of course, but really it only matters insofar as it informs how we actually live our lives. And so one of the things that flourishes in Christian community is that we walk in the light together. 
There is a kind of Christianity among some, I think, that burns high or low based on the company that they're in. When they're around a church crowd, they say and do all the churchy things. But when they're in a different setting, their light doesn't seem to shine quite so brightly. Their language is different. The things they laugh at are different. The things that they cherish are different. The light in their lives is artificially manipulated like a gas jet. It's turned up and down as it suits them. I think this is why Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount not to hide our lights under a basket, but to place it on a stand so that it can provide light to all in the house. And of course, why would we be tempted to hide it under a basket? Well, because it won't be well received maybe. Uh, But one of the things I think that comes as a fruit of koinonia fellowship is that we're encouraged to live the truth we know. It's one thing to gather in a place like this and hear God's word proclaimed and to worship God together that is altogether right and good again. But there is something else that's needed, and that's accountability. That's koinonia fellowship. That is to know others and to be known. And I encourage you again to do that violent act. (laughs) After the service today or next Sunday, after you've prayerfully considered the different groups that are being offered, I encourage you to find a group and put your name down and commit to it. Uh, A lot of the groups are on Tuesday nights. Um, We're going to be having Hide and Seek Club back up and running is the hope and what we're planning for. And so if you have children, you're welcome to come drop them off at Hide and Seek Club and then go to group. Also, I'm excited about Sunday school starting again um, next month. Sunday school is a small group that meets essentially right after church, and that's a great thing to be a part of as well. I uh, just really encourage you to do that. A lot of the groups will be our sermon series that we'll be studying when those things kick off is a study through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Um, but some other groups are there as well. I think Andrew and Jess Blackstone will be going through the book Art of Neighboring which is a great book. Really encourage you to consider being a part of that. Uh, We can be great neighbors for Jesus in our communities. Uh, I think just really excited about small groups. Encourage you to prayerfully consider being a part of one. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we have seen some things in your word this morning that the basis of our fellowship is is found in, in the truth. And Father, uh, John made it very clear that in his proclamation of the truth that he had seen and heard and was passing on to them, he was doing that for the sake of fellowship. God, the gospel is the basis of our union not only with you but with one another. It informs everything about how we live our lives, how we view the world, what we love and treasure. And God, it finds practical expression in our lives in many different ways. God, many of us are struggling uh, in, in different ways, struggling with loneliness for sure, struggling in frustration, God, that uh, we are not seeing things happening in our lives the way we would have liked to. And maybe that's because we're trying to pursue those things in isolation from Koinonia Fellowship. Maybe the missing ingredient in my battles with sin or in my struggles spiritually is that I have not really had as a part of my life koinonia fellowship. 
And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, stir us up, God, and, and, and by the Holy Spirit, draw us into groups where we will be helped. Father, I pray that in the midst of that, a love for righteousness would flourish, a love for one another, a love for your word. God, I pray that as disagreements arise over interpretation of different things, that that would not find the form of contentious disputation, but a loving exploration of what is true. God, I pray that you would preserve us in the bond of peace with unity, that in the essentials of the faith, that we would be in lockstep agreement. And in those other areas where Christians of good conscience can and will disagree, God, that we would extend each other a lot of charity and grace and good humor. God, in all things, lubricate us with agape love and help us to live together in a way that makes you visible. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.